Well, good morning. How is everybody? Well, I'm glad to be with you. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, so it's good to be with you in live. If you are joining us in Blend or Amped, if you're out in Roan County or Bearden online, glad to be with you. Um, does anyone love a good story? Like not many people. I love a good story. My grandpa was a great storyteller. Like he couldn't remember your name, but he could remember details from 1940, you know, and you're like, what is going on? And I, he drew me in with his stories. And one of the best ways that we tell stories in our culture is through movies. Any movie lovers out there? I, I love movies, but little side note, um, after I've had kids, movies have changed for me because my kids will be like, hey, let's have a movie night. And I go, okay, that sounds fun. And here's the reality of movie night every time. It could be movie afternoon. It could be movie night. It could be movie morning. You know what happens to me when I sit and watch a movie? Soon as I sit down, I'm out cold. And my kids, I'll wake up at the end, and they're like, Dad, what did you think of the movie? I went, that was a great movie. And, but I do love movies, and one of the movies that we watch fairly often in our household comes from a book uh, by C.S. Lewis, and, and the book is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and which was made a movie several years ago, if you've seen it. And if you remember, if you've seen the movie or if you've read the book, there's an end towards the end of the book, towards the end of the story, there's this epic battle that lines up. Do you remember this? And in the movie, they have on this side, on these cliffs on this side, you have the, the armies of Narnia. You have the good guys over here. And you have Peter the Great and stuff standing there. And, and on this side, all of a sudden coming, riding up over a ridge, here comes the white witch. And she's being pulled by polar bears, which is pretty awesome. And they, even though she's a bad girl. And so they come and they kind of do this face off. And this epic battle is set. And then they do what they do in movies where they kind of stare back and forth at each other. They're like this, you know. And they kind of look back and forth and the tension's building. And all of a sudden, Peter does what? He raises his sword and he yells, for Narnia! And what happens? The two, they march up and they engage in this epic battle. And they're fighting. And it looks as if the forces of Narnia, the armies of Narnia are going to lose until what? Aslan comes. And Aslan comes and then he comes and the armies of Narnia turn, the tides turn and what happens? The armies of Narnia squeak out of victory and they win good triumphs over evil and everyone feels better in the end. And this is the way when I have a picture in my head of the final battle, right? The battle of God and our enemy Satan, that there's going to be these forces. And this is the picture that I get in my head. I get this picture of like the armies of God on one side and the armies of Satan on the other. And it's going to be this epic battle and God will win. But it's almost like they're right here and that it's going to be really close. I got to tell you something, what we're going to see in our passage, we're in, we're in Revelation chapter 19, that is not anything the picture that we get in the scripture. You want to know the picture we get in scripture? Jesus is absolutely victorious and it's not even a battle. It's not a battle, he just wins. 
And that's how much more powerful our God is compared to the enemy that we face. So we're going to be jumping in. And here's something that I want you to keep in mind. It's our big idea as we jump into our passage today is that Jesus's victory motivates me. It drives me to do what? Live faithfully today to live faithfully today. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your smartphone, it's going to be on the screen. If you have your Revelation journal, Revelation chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 6. This says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. If you remember back to last week, that means praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. Why? For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, whoa, 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 don't do that. You mustn't do that. Why? I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And look what this angel who's revealing this says to him. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, If you had any question, if there was any remaining question in your mind, what is the book of Revelation all about? The book of Revelation is about worship. It's about worshiping the true king. It's about worshiping the lamb. And so in this section right here, what do we have? We have a shifting If you remember back to last week, John was writing, hallelujah, why? Because Babylon the Great has fallen. This world system known as Babylon, this world system that wants power, greed, sexual immorality, this world system has been defeated. It's been conquered. And so John's writing hallelujah for that. And now he shifts and he goes, I'm not praising you any longer. Well, I'm still praising you for that, but I'm praising you now. Why? Because the day has come. The marriage feast of the lamb has come. Now this imagery of marriage feast is not something new. In fact, Jesus refers back to it in Luke chapter 11. He talks about, or or Luke chapter 14, he talks about this marriage feast that is to come. He talks about it when he's instituting communion. He says, I'm not going to eat of the fruit of the vine again until what? Until we celebrate it in the kingdom. He's referencing this marriage feast. Isaiah, the prophet in Isaiah 25, refers to this great feast at the consummation at the end when the kingdom arrives. And in in Revelation chapter 19, that's exactly what we see taking place. Now, one of the things I love about the book of Revelation is the comparing and contrasting that you see throughout the book of Revelation. Have you paid attention? Have you seen that? And so last week, if you remember back, we we were introduced to the harlot, the great prostitute of Babylon. And do you remember the way she was described? She was described in, and she was flowing in this purple and scarlet gowns and she had all of this ornateness to her and she had a gold cup in her hands. 
And she was representative of great big promises. She was enticing. There was something about her that drew people to her. She promised big, and what happened? She delivered small. She promises big, and yet when you follow her, her way leads to what? Destruction. Now contrast that to what we have in this section of our scripture, 19, 6 through 10. We have the bride of Christ. We have the bride of Christ ordained in just a a simple elegance, a simple beauty. And if you look at verse 8, I love that it says, it was granted her. It's talking about his people were granted to clothe herself, themselves with fine linen, bright and pure. God made a way for us to be the bride of Christ. He's the one that did it. He's the one that paved the way. And this marriage feast that all scripture has been pointing to is now being realized. And that's why the worship takes place. And I want us to know worship is our response to Jesus's assured victory. This marriage feast is the victory of God. And worship is the natural response to that. We have seen again and again and again throughout this book about Christ's assured victory. When we looked at the seven seals, they were pointing to what? Christ's victory. When we see the seven trumpets, what are they pointing to? Christ's victory. When we see the seven bowls of wrath being poured out, what is it pointing to? Christ's victory. And once again, we see here that the victory of Jesus is assured. His great wedding feast has come, and once and for all, he will deal with all the injustices of the world. We're going to see a couple battle scenes shaping up in this next section as we read it. And I got to tell you, as we read these, we need to throw out, if you ever had the concept of kind of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe battle scene, shaping up for this end time battle, we need to throw that out as we actually look at what happens. Why? Because this battle that is shaping up, it's not close. It's not close. It's not a battle. The assured victory that we have in Jesus is not close. And church, that gives us every reason to worship our Jesus is victorious. That's good news. Let's let's read about it. And and starting in verse 11, it says this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Can I stop there for one minute? Once again, maybe you're like, quit pointing out things that you think are funny. Um, I think this is funny. And why? Because, okay, I had had, um, had like 12 or 13, I don't even know how many, teenage girls at my house on Friday night for a sleepover. You talk about fun? That's fun. 12 or 13 teenage girls in your house. And the next morning when they get up, my, wife's, my wife made crepes. And this girl's sitting at the counter and there's a button on our countertop that is for uh, the garbage disposal. And she's looking at it and she goes, 
what's that button for? And I said, well, it's the garbage disposal. And she looks at me and she goes, have you ever like had the urge, like if you're not supposed to press something that you really want to press it? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. That's like the natural desire in us. So then I'm thinking about that and I'm reading this and I'm going, I want to know this name. Like we revealed a lot of names of Jesus and it's like, he's got a name that no one knows but himself. I'm like, well, what is it? He's like, move on. I'm not going to tell you. So that's what we're going to do. And so he's got this name written, but no one knows himself. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is this, the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we get this vision. And once again, these visions are symbolic. And so we have Jesus on a white horse. If you remember back, and I'm, I'm asking you to remember back, remember in Revelation chapter 8, and once again, we get this comparing and contrasting. Revelation chapter 8 is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And when the first seal is opened, the first horseman was what? A rider on a white horse. And it says a crown was given to him, and he went out, and he was a conquest. And the thing that we looked at was that this was an anti-type Christ. It was someone, it was a cheap imitation of Jesus. And all of a sudden... In Revelation chapter 19, we have the real. We have Jesus, the rider on the white horse. And this white horse symbolizes, represents conquest, victory. When a nation would overthrow another nation, the, the conquering king would ride through on a white horse. And what I find fascinating is it's not just Jesus on a white horse, is it? The armies of heaven are arrayed behind him, and what are they? They're dressed in fine linen, symbolizing this righteousness, their, their purity, and what are they as well riding? White horses. Now, once again, this is symbol. I don't think that Jesus is all of a sudden going to be coming riding down from heaven on a white horse, and all of a sudden there's like this huge, I don't, I'm not good on horses, so I'm like, Jesus, if that's the truth and if that's the reality, you're going to have to teach me to ride a horse because I'm not good at it. I think it's symbol. I think it's representing conquest. You see, the original readers would have understood this. They would have known, oh, that's symbolizing conquest and this victory. And so that's what it's representing, that these people, those in Christ, are victorious. And the story continues. This vision continues. And all of a sudden, an angel cries out to the birds of the air. And he says, birds, come. Why? Because there's going to be a great feast for you. Because you are going to feast on the flesh of kings and on generals and those who have the mark of the beast who are following the beast and the false prophet. And the beast and the false prophet lead their armies up. And this showdown looks like it's going to take place. You have the armies of God on one side. You have the beast and the false prophet. And they are bringing their armies together. And there's th this epic showdown is set up. 
Once again, I love the comparing and contrasting in Revelation. There's two feasts in Revelation and just our section here, isn't there? In Revelation 19, verses 6 through about 10, what's it talk about? The marriage feast. This great feast that the Lamb has prepared that is now ready. And now we have an angel crawling out to the birds of the air and saying, get ready for a feast. But what is the feast this time? Those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are going to have an incredible feast. And those who refuse to bow their knee to Jesus will be the feast for birds. There's this comparing and contrasting. And this armies are set. The battle is set. It looks like it's going to go down. And it looks like King Jesus is going to be like, for Narnia, I mean, for heaven. And, and it looks like it's going to go down. But what happens? We get to verse 20. And, and it says, the beast and the false prophet are captured. There's no fight. There's no battle. There's no Jesus riding in. and cap They're just captured. And what happens to them? They're thrown into the lake of burning fire. It's, they're thrown into this. And then what does it say? It said the rest of the army was mowed down with the sword of his mouth. It's over. Now, now once again, the sword from his mouth, if you think about the way the sword is used oftentimes in Scripture, oftentimes it's the Word of God. Even the names of Jesus revealed is the Word of God here. In my thinking, as this is simple, I don't think Jesus all of a sudden has this sword that just goes, and just like destroys an army. I don't think that's the way it works. I think Jesus speaks a word, and all of a sudden, the whole armies are completely destroyed. Those who refuse to bend their knee to him are just mowed down. The very word of God is more powerful than the armies of the enemy. I don't know about you, but that fires me up. That fires me up. Are you kidding me? The rest of the vision continues. Jesus mows down the armies with the word. And after this, chapter 20 says that there's this establishment of a reign of Christ. That Jesus is going to establish a reign and throw Satan into a pit where he's going to be bound up. And it says for a thousand years where Satan will no longer be allowed to deceive the nations. And Christ establishes a reign for a thousand years. You see it in chapter 20, verse 4. It says this, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the a word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, what is this thousand year? If, if you've ever heard, this is one of the most known kind of and most debated sections of the book of Revelation. If you've heard anything about the millennium, that's what this is. Millennium simply refers to a thousand-year period. And I got to remind us something. The things that are unclear in Scripture, we hold on a little bit loosely. Because there are people throughout church history, centuries, who love Jesus and who have very different opinions and views about what this thousand years are. 
But I'm going to suggest this. As we think about time through the book of Revelation, if we go back uh, once again to the seals, and when the seventh seal is opened, it said there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, I don't think necessarily, it could be that an angel standing there with a stopwatch going, how long is that silence? 30 minutes exactly. No, what is it saying? That there was silence in heaven for a short period of time. Then we fast forward to Revelation chapter 17. And what happens? It says the kings of Babylon were given authority for one hour. Now, once again, I think time was symbolic here. One hour is representative of another short period of time. You get to Revelation 18. It says three times there that Babylon fell in an hour. And once again, I think the author is communicating in this symbolic language of going, these are representative of a short period of time. And now, once again, you get comparing and contrasting. And so you compare 30 minutes, an hour, to all of a sudden you get a thousand years. And once again, I think the author is being symbolic of going, listen, we've got a relatively short period of time, and now we've got a significant chunk of time. And what we're going to see very quickly is that a thousand years is compared and contrasted with forever and ever. And so once again, is this a literal thousand years? It could be. But I would suggest with the way that time has been used throughout the book is that this is representative of a long period of time. And the vision continues that Satan, so Christ reigns for this significant period of time. There's relative peace. Uh, be, why? Because Satan is not allowed to roam and deceive the nations. But it says Satan must be released. And we see it in verse 8. Chapter 20, verse 8 says, He will come out, Satan will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Once again, we're shaping up for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And it's amazing to me. It blows my mind that we have this reign of Christ for this significant period that people will be able to see the true king and he will establish a reign for a significant period of time. But as soon as the enemy is released, it's a spiritual reality to come to know Christ and to see him for who he is, the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Why do I say that? Because as soon as the enemy is released, what happens? People flock to him. They say, we don't want to bend our knee to that king. We want to do what we want to do. And he provides a way for that. And so they immediately follow Satan, so much so that another army is amassed. I don't know about you, but there's been oftentimes that you've been praying for your three-by-five card. I've been praying, I've been praying, I've been praying, and they've seen Jesus work, and they might even know things about Jesus, and you're going, why don't they just believe? It's a spiritual reality. 
So keep praying, keep praying, don't give up on it. I've been praying for my three by five card for a long time and it's seemingly nothing happening. Seemingly there's been no progress, but within the last week, all of a sudden, my wife and I are able to have conversations in the people's lives that we've been praying for and God is beginning to move and open a door and I'm sitting there praying, okay, God, give me the opportunity. Give me the opportunity to share about Jesus. Why? Because they need you. It's a spiritual reality. And once again, we see this epic battle signing, like, forming up, right? Satan's released. He's marching the armies. And it says he's surrounding the city of God. And once again, it's symbolic that, that there's going to be this great battle. And then, I, is it fair to say sometimes God cheats? I don't, it's not cheating if it's God. But what happens? It doesn't even say like the armies of God came out to meet the armies of Satan. All it says is fire rained down from heaven and completely destroyed them. God took Satan by the scruff of the neck, threw him in the lake of fire, and it says where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. God wins again. And he doesn't even fight. He's like, ah, we'll just use fire this time. Like he just does what he wants to do. And then what happens? We get to chapter 20, starting in verse 11. It says this, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is a book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire." This is the final judgment seat of God. We've talked about that God is graciously providing a way and there's opportunity, there's opportunity. We are living in that period, but one day the door will shut. It will be too late. But I want us to think, did you see those battles shape up? The first one, it looked like the armies of God, armies of Satan, and all of a sudden the beast and the false prophet are captured and the rest are cut down by the word of his mouth. There's another battle that shapes up and all of a sudden God rains down fire from heaven. Jesus is victorious. My son plays sixth grade football. They just won the championship last night. I was fired up for him. Yeah, that's a reason to be excited. And I have never seen my son more nervous. His game wasn't until 5 o'clock last night. And I've never seen my son more nervous all day for a game. He's like, I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. He's like, my stomach hurts. I'm like, dude, you'll be fine. And they went out. And now I want you to imagine they are one of the best sixth grade football teams around here in our area. They won the championship. Now, I want you to picture something. Could you imagine if they're warming up, okay, the sixth grade football team, they're about this big, look like bobbleheads, and they're doing their stretches, and all of a sudden, they're warming up on their side of the field, and all of a sudden, the Los Angeles Rams come running out on the other side. 
It doesn't even have to, the Rams aren't even great, but they won the Super Bowl recently. And, and could you imagine if they ran out, my son plays safety, he's like the last man back and has to tackle anybody that gets through. Could you imagine if all of a sudden an NFL running back, if that game took place, an NFL running back comes plowing through and he gets to my son, my son would be standing there like this and he'd be like, no, just go ahead. That's cool. Like we're good. It wouldn't even be a game. I think it would be over before it started because I think the sixth graders would run over and just be like, can we have your autograph? They're like, we're not going to play. But can we? It's not even a battle. The disparity between an NFL team and a sixth grade football team is so great, but the disparity between the power of our living God is so much greater than the power of the enemy. And I don't know about you, but listen. The scripture tells us is greater is he who is in you by the very Holy Spirit that resides in you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We have no reason to fear. Jesus' victory should motivate us to live faithfully here and now. Why? Because we are fighting from a place of victory already. We have no reason to fear. Will it get hard? Yep. Will it be just an easy path? Oh, we're victorious. No, it's going to be hard. But we worship. Why? Because we're victorious. A couple things I want us to notice is this. We see that King Jesus, the true King of kings and Lord of lords, will ultimately do what is right. That's what we see throughout this passage. King Jesus, the victorious one, will do what is right. What do I mean by that? As I, um, you look at the armies that are amassed, and you look at those who have refused in this life to bend their knee, to bow their knee to King Jesus, and they march against, actively oppose Jesus, and Jesus does what is right. I've, I've heard it said before, I can't believe a loving God would send people to hell. Have you ever heard that? And that's a, that's a big question. But I read this passage of scripture, and, and this is the reality I see, is that Jesus ultimately gives me what I want. If people don't want Jesus in this life, that image that Dave said yesterday, if people don't bow their knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords, if they refuse in this life to bow their knee to the true king, why would Jesus force himself upon them for eternity? People get to decide. If they want Jesus in this life, guess what? He will do what's right. For those of us who are in Christ, who have submitted our lives to Jesus Christ, he will do what is right by us. And I don't know about you, but in this life, I want Jesus. I want Jesus more than I want anything else. And that doesn't mean all the time. There's sometimes I'm like, I would really like that and really like this. It doesn't mean that there's not a struggle, but in the depth of my soul, I go, I want you, Jesus, more than all else. And guess what he does? He does what is right. And what is right for those who are in Christ to spend eternity with him? And I love the way Paul writes about that in Ephesians. He says, in Ephesians 1, he says, in him. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed 
with the promised Holy Spirit. Listen to this language. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That is what's guaranteed for those who are in Christ. Eternity with him. He will do what is right. He will judge rightly. And ultimately, he will give us what we want. And I just got to tell you something. If you're in here, if you're watching online, if you're in one of the other venues, listen. If we bow our knee to Jesus in this life, if we submit to him as Lord, then he will do what is right and bring us with him where he is. But there's a lot of people who go, well, I don't want to bow my knee to a king, but I'm just going to stay neutral. I don't want to bow my knee to the enemy, but I don't want to bow my knee to Jesus, so I'm going to stay this third path. Can I just tell you there is no third path? If you refuse to bow your knee to Jesus as king, you are bowing your knee to the way of Babylon, to the forces. You are bowing your knee to the harlot. You are following the way that leads to destruction. Lastly, the king's coming judgment drives me to live for eternity. It drives me to live to live for eternity. Now, I want to think about this in two ways. One is the thing that we just talked about. There is a judgment. And there is a books that are opened. And, and there is a book that's referred to. Now, whether it's uh, symbolic or whether it's real, I don't fully know. But there is a list. There is those who are in Christ. And if your name is in that book, you're in. But if your name isn't, what happens? You are separated from him forever. That is a coming judgment. And so I'm going to tell you, bow your knee now while there is still time. But I want us to think about judgment in another way. All throughout Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, we read about rewards for obedience in Christ, for faithfulness in Christ. We read about rewards. We read about it in Revelation 22:12. Where Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Recompense is, I'm bringing my rewards with me. So Christian, if you have bent your knee to Jesus, can I just tell you something? The judgment is nothing to fear. You are in. But can I tell you, our God is so good that it's not just about getting in. Now, some of you in here, you're like, Dave, if you knew my past, getting in is good enough for me. If I can squeak in, that's fine. But I'm just telling you something. Our God is so good and so gracious, and he's sitting there, and he's going, there's abundantly more in me. So what does that mean? He will reward you for the obedience that you live out to him here and now. He's going to reward you for it. Now, I want you to understand something. Do I fully understand what that means? It's like, what does it mean to be rewarded for it? I don't fully get it. No, I don't. But I just know it's taught. It's there. And so when we think about this life, what's my motivation to keep living obediently is God sees it and he knows it. He knows it's hard to be faithful to him in this life. He knows it. 
But every time you walk in obedience, he sees what is done in secret, and he's going, I see you. I know it. I know you stayed faithful to me. I know you walked obediently to me. I know you shared the gospel for me. And sometimes it goes terrible, but you are obedient. And he sees it, and he's going, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to reward you. So I don't know about you, but heaven is going to be great, but I want to live in the fullness that all God has to offer. Amen? So what do we do with this this week? The first thing is this, is if you've never bowed your knee to King Jesus, today's the day. Today's the day. Jesus came, we're going to celebrate in Christmas, he came the first time in meekness. He came and he lived the perfect life, he died on the cross to forgive our sins, the, th- the very thing that separated us from him our sin, our, our desire to want to live this life independently of him. And he came and he died on a cross. He died a criminal's death, taking the very punishment that your sin, that my sin deserves. And he rose again. And guess what? There's going to be a second advent, a second coming of Christ. And that's what we just read about today. And this time he's coming victorious to redeem those who are in Christ. So I'm just going to encourage you. There's no magic prayer. Somehow in church we've turned it into you got to pray a certain prayer and you got to get the words right and in a certain order. And if you don't, it somehow missed the mark. No. Ultimately, it's acknowledging him as king, as the Lord, and saying, I'm going to follow you. And so I'll be up front afterwards. We're going to have prayer teams that are going to be up here and they would love to talk to you. If you want to submit to Jesus as King, as Lord today, don't wait another day. There's still grace. There's still opportunity here and now. The second thing that I'm going to encourage you to do is that we keep wrestling with the scripture in the live it out section. And so whether you're in a small group, I'd encourage you, wrestle through those questions, dig deeper in. We, we weren't able to even read all of this today. Go back. You put in a little effort, and you're going to get a lot more out of it. Take some people, whether it's at lunchtime or around your family dinner table, and take a question each day and wrestle with it together. And finally this, we are a word-dependent people. And sometimes we need to be reminded that we are worshiping, that we are living from a place of victory. I'm going to encourage you this week, memorize Revelation 19.6 and use it as a prayer every day. And it's simply this, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And that is the truth, the reality of those who are in Christ that we worship and we say, hallelujah, why? Because you're reigning. And so what we're going to do now in all our venues and all our campuses is this, is that we're going to start or we're going to end where we started the passage today with worship. And so stand with me on all venues, campuses. I'm going to pray for us and then we are going to jump right into worshiping the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus, we come, we acknowledge you and we say hallelujah. The Lord God, the Lord Almighty reigns and you are reigning on high and you are victorious and it is not close. And so we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.